think uh, Dan Duig's going to sling some dope terms. Yeah, we're just continuing this this kind of um, this module, I guess, talking about drugs. Um, and I thought terminology would be good to talk about. Um, so maybe we could just throw out some terms and and see kind of if, if people know them. And maybe if – well, yeah, we'll, we'll just try that. And then I'd also be curious about any drug terms that you guys have heard uh, that, that we can just kind of share. Because if we know the lingo, this is like key, right? I mean this is – this is kind of code switching and, and understanding what people are talking about. Um, Do you want to ask what we heard about last night? Yeah, that's so actually, so a new one for me, um, uh, I was over at Colleen's shop at BCSO with CNT and, and they said that they had recently done a bust of a combination of meth and ketamine put into like a sharp, well, don't want to put into a, solid form uh uh like a crystal form i wonder has anybody encountered this methamphetamine and if so has anybody heard it called anything i, I want to know what the name of that is because this was new to me Methamphetamine sounds like not. Nothing south. I wasn't. I wasn't surprised by it, um, as I explained to them, because um, I, I study. One of my favorite things to to study is international drug trends, and uh, that mostly from the United Nations, and we can kind of see what's on the on the horizon of of drugs, uh, based on what they get through interdiction. Um, and in Southeast Asia, what happened in Southeast Asia over the last ten years is. Huge economic growth, huge infrastructure development, and a lot more education for people. And they really they didn't put people to like arts education and these things. They put people into like um, engineering and chemistry. So a huge explosion of chemists and also chemistry labs in Southeast Asia. And as a result, ketamine and amphetamine production have gone through the roof. They've really increased in Southeast Asia. And then they're being exported to the rest of the world. Um, uh, and so it kind of made sense that, that we would, it's not that surprising to me that we'd see a, a combination product. It also kind of makes sense from the user's perspective because ketamine is like a dissociative, right? We, anesthesiologists are the biggest users of ketamine in humans. And then veterinarians in doing vet anesthesiology in animals, um, that's what me most ketamine is used for in this country. And ketamine, it's a dissociative, so it can kind of like make you numb, check you out from your body. It, and it actually works differently at different doses. At low doses, it can be kind of activating and excitatory. And then at higher doses, you zone out more, become more numb, way, way more of a risk of being like victimized or date raped. And then people talk about the goal, which is getting to the K-hole, they call it, <laughs> uh, which is this like this state of being where you're kind of in touch with everything, but also in touch with nothing. Uh, people describe it in these like dual descriptors, like, like the universe is, is nothing at all and everything is beautiful and peaceful. And that's the K-hole. You get lost in the K-hole. It's like this blissful nothingness, which I know sounds weird, but that's, that's how people describe it. Um, but that, so that's kind of, it makes you sleepy and drowsy and um, in, in, Obtunded. So if you mix it with meth, 
then you have that kind of feel good feeling and you're awake. So it makes sense that people might mix the two together and you could, you know, some people use them at like dance parties and raves. And so you could dance longer if you mixed it with meth, stuff like that. Um, so it sounds like just kind of a wicked or high. Mm-hmm. Um, but it sounds like nobody has a name for it. Or really found that yet. So if somebody says I'm using shards, what drug are they talking about? Yeah. Nobody in this room gets the answer from now on because we, we, because we have the answers. I don't. So it's meth. So shards, shards is typically meth around here. We used to call it like glass. We used to call it ice, right? It used to be called crank, um, but now it's just called shards. The names have to change because of the work that you guys do. So people want to keep it clandestine, so they call it something different. Uh, when you make methamphetamine, you, you typically make like a big piece, like a pane of glass, and then you break it into small Sorry, guys, it dropped us for some reason. I don't know why. So shards is meth. How about Shiva? If somebody says I'm using Shiva, what are they using? Isn't that heroin? Yep. Yeah, Shiva's heroin. Nice. Ten years ago, it was pot. Uh, even, but now it's heroin. So Shiva, especially in the in the northern half of our state, Shiva's heroin. People will also call it papers, right? Um, and papers is also a unit of measurement of heroin. Um, like China White. So there are two types of heroin. Right, most of heroin in this country is black tar, or some people call it brown tar. There's no difference, or they'll call it tar. That's most heroin in this country, but on the coasts, like in the Bay Area, San Francisco, and in Seattle, and then in New York, and in um, like DC, Baltimore, you'll find China White, and that's like a, a, a kind of a highly refined white powder form of heroin. But most heroin everywhere else is black tar. And so like on the coasts, they'll, they'll transport it in little balloons. Um, like you see in the movies and stuff like that. But most people around here don't have balloons because the black tar would just stick to the inside and you lose your product. So it's, it's packaged like in paper. Um, and so we call it papers. People will also, another unit of measurement is a medio, right? And, and I think that's probably a half a gram. Um, but I've, I mean, I don't know. I mean, medio is half. So, uh, so for the most part, it's, it's measured in grams. Um, so papers, medios, and then of course, some people just go buy shots. Um, um, but it's heroin, Shiva. What's a, uh, what do they call it? The something ball. Eight ball? Eight ball? Not speed an eight ball. ball. Speed, I guess a speed ball is what they call it. What's a speed ball? Anybody? I, I slammed a speed ball, they might say. It's cocaine and heroin, isn't it? There you go. Yeah, cocaine and heroin. It could also be meth and heroin. Um, uh, either one. Yeah, that's a speedball. Most most heroin users do not like stimulants, and and most heavy stimulant users don't like heroin. But some people like the combination of both, and so that's a speedball. And so, and I, I use the term I you know I 
somebody might say, I slammed a speedball. Slamming is to inject IV. Uh, we could say shooting, but you can say slamming. Around here, that means to shoot up. Um, Isn't that what killed Belushi? Speedball. John Belushi? Probably. Probably. It's a pretty lethal combo. Um, so you get the you get you get all the kind of the bliss from the opiate from the heroin, but instead of nodding off, you get to stay awake. Um, but the problem with cocaine is that it causes um, heart attacks. And then if if and then the heroin is still there, so it's also decreasing your respiratory drive, your your drive to breathe. So if you're having a heart attack, and and so you need more oxygen, and you're not breathing much. That increases the likelihood that your heart um, fails uh, and you die. Um, what else? What are some other drug terms that you guys have heard? Jenkum. Jenkum? Jenkum. Jenkum, yeah. Well, no, you're right. Can you spell it? J-E-N-C-H-E-M. Jenkum. What's Jenkum? It's very nasty. It's when they ferment urine and feces in a bottle. They put a balloon on top and then they inhale it. Uh, who you does can look that? look it up on Google. Kids were doing it. You can look it up on Google. It's pretty interesting. People fermenting their excrement and then inhaling it after it's fermented is supposedly it's pretty euphoric but your breast smells oh, like I'll, shit uh, <laughs> yeah. oh, oh, take your word for it Chanko. that's it's pretty gross nick on his career rancher my understanding is jankum originated in i believe south africa um and it's it's Basically, the methane gas is put off by the, the breakdown of the, the fecal matter. Uh, huh. and I think it's, it, can, it can be spelled J E N A K E M as well, I believe. Yeah, It's so kind of a form of huffing. Okay. That's pretty gross. Yeah. Uh, people know what huffing is in general? Yes. Right? Mm -hmm. Um, there, there are kind of two main types of things that people huff nitrous or what people call whippets and, uh, and then anything else that has toluene in it, which can be like cements, adhesives, spray paints. Anybody know why people would prefer metallic spray paint to a non-metallic spray paint? That's definitely this, the huffing, you know, Product of choice is like some gold, it's some oh. silver, some chrome, better than your blue enamel or whatever. Anybody have any idea why? It's kind of funny. So, uh, the to make those pigments metallic, they actually put little pieces of metallic-like reflective material in it, so it's heavier paint. So it takes more of the propellant to get it out of the can, and the propellant is what has the toluene, and the that's what you're huffing. So if you get a, a can of metallic paint, you actually get more of the stuff to huff for your dollar, more bang for your buck. So that's why 
I don't know if you guys have ever arrested people with paint on the lower half of their face. Yeah. Is there something about huffing that's in here that makes, I, I feel like whenever we run into people that are huffers, they seem cognitively slower yeah. than many users of other substances. Yeah, absolutely. So it turns out not all drugs kill brain cells. Unlike which ones, please. Unlike the, <laughs> unlike the commercials and the the partnership for a drug free America would want us to think. So the the drugs that kill brain cells, alcohol number one, huge huge nerve brain cell killer, um, and huffing number two, um, and then methamphetamine would be number three, and anything with meth in it. So huffing. And, and actually, huffing should probably be the top of that list. It totally kills brain cells. And actually, in, um, it's, it's like a worse form of multiple sclerosis, to get back to the other, uh, really? the other case. What it, it, it also causes our body to attack the white matter in our, in our brain, in our nerves. And so um, they're super burnt, huffers. And then they also, the, the first things that they lose are their taste of, their sense of taste, their eyesight and their balance. Holy. Um, those, those like nerve tracks in the brain um, are the first ones to be eroded. And you don't have to be a huffer. Uh, you can be a painter and not wear your, your personal protective equipment. I mean, those, those, those masks, those N95s and ventilators are so important. Any ex long-term exposure to that sort of propellant will do that. So that's toluene huffing does that. How do you spell toluene? Toluene is T-O-L-U-E-N-E, toluene. And that's, if, if you start to look at um, like paints, solvents, and industrial adhesives, you'll see that in most of them. And look under your sink. You'll find it in all kinds of stuff. This is why kids huff, because they don't, you don't have to show ID to go under your sink, right? Like go into the garage uh, and they can find this stuff. Um, now, nitrous or whippets does not cause that brain damage, but it does cause damage to the nerves, the peripheral nerves, like in your hands and legs. So that causes what, what's called a peripheral neuropathy, like, like the same way diabetes does, where you might have numbness and tingling in your legs and your arms, and you might get weakness in those. But it takes a lot of huffing nitrous to do that. Nitrous is pretty safe in small amounts. That's why, like, the dentist will use it on kids as an anesthetic. I mean, you can have that sort of exposure. You can do some whippets every now and then, probably not a problem, but doing a lot of whippets. Um, <laughs> We're having a whippet party. Like when I was in high school, some of my friends, they stole one of these huge tanks from a hospital and like they were seriously burnt for a long time. I mean, that, that was a yeah. lot of nitrous oxide to go through. Um, it got to the point that they were tired of filling balloons. So they just cut a, a garden hose and connected that. And seriously dangerous because they'd, they'd have the garden hose in their mouth and then pass out on the couch and it would still be pumping nitrous into them. Very, very dangerous. Very, very dangerous. Step outside, Dr. D. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was your friends. Statute of limitations passed on that one. My friends got together without me. Yeah. <laughs> got to have real world experience. You know? Otherwise, you got no street cred. <laughs> Um, is that why you have a hose in the backseat of uh, your car? <laughs> uh, plead, the fifth, plead the fifth. So, so that's happened. Hmm. What else? What other drug things have we not talked about? Or what, what about like th there's that trend now, and the, this is kind of off color, but where the kids 
pour the stuff down their rectums to get they're like oh. yeah like uh cough, cough suppressant or uh, D dm the dm yeah so yeah now why people will put anything in their rectum or in their eyes as a route of administration i do not understand um <laughs> i thought it was absorbed like it that. is so so actually from your colon you actually absorb liquid things pretty quickly um like so so for instance i guess if you were to take let's say that you were taking uh, you wanted to use peyote or something like that or psilocybin mushrooms and you didn't like how it made you sick, you could maybe make up a brew and turkey baste it up into your oh, rectum. <laughs> like you wouldn't, you wouldn't get the nausea but and you would absorb the drug as long as you kind of I kept it in there. Yeah. But like other than that, like... I don't want to get high that bad. Right, <laughs> like it's going to pretty far extremes and that nausea must be pretty bad. Yeah. I've heard of people putting things in their eyes. I don't understand why anybody would put... I think, you know, sometimes especially teenagers, they use this logic like, well, your eye is really close to your brain or your eye has like a direct you know, <laughs> link to your brain, like, which is true, but that doesn't mean that well, you'll absorb a drug putting directly into your brain. Yeah. Now you asked about, about cough syrup, yeah. DM, right? And this is something called robotripping. So the DM is dextromethorphan, mm -hmm. which is actually, it's funny, as a, as a chemical, it's similar to PCP, but it works very differently. Uh, they just look alike. Um, uh, but it doesn't have a PCP-like effect. So dextromethorphan that's in a cough suppressant, it is a cough suppressant. Um, and it, it's a, like a dissociative. So again, at, at low doses, maybe you feel a little bit more energy, but generally it's kind of a drunk effect. What we had at the, when I was at the high school, I worked at a high school as an SRO. Yeah. They would drink. Yeah, they would drink that, but then they would take an antihistamine with it, and I don't know why. I don't but know they why. would take an antihistamine, but it was they were they were like tripping. Yeah, I mean you would go and they they'd have this real cold sweat about them. Just everywhere you'd go, like grab. I, in fact, I thought one of them might have been like um, uh, diabetic or something. Just right. the way they were. Yeah, you of, can become almost delirious, and you can trip in that way. You can have it messes with your eyes, and so you can have like hallucinations or illusions right. from that. Um, so uh, DM uh, or dextromethorphan that's in Robitussin, Robotrypin, or triple C is the other thing people take. Corsidin, which is another cough suppressant that does the same thing. Um, and it turns out, actually, these are very dangerous if they're combined with serotonin antidepressants. So that's I, I educate teens about that. Teens, for the most part, use this. Most adults don't um, or abuse it. Um, but yeah, yeah, it can cause that sort of a delirium. Um, just like another thing that causes a delirium as an intoxication is Jimson weed. Anybody heard of like Jimson weed or uh, local weed? Yeah. We call it. Um, it's this beautiful plant that grows on the sidewalks everywhere here. George O'Keefe painted it and has these, you know, multi-million dollar paintings of, of the, uh, it's a datura plant is what it's called. These beautiful big white blossoms and then their seed pods are super cool. They're like covered with spikes and those are the seed pods. Um, Carlos Castaneda wrote about it. Um, this is not a cool drug. Um, I'll admit I ate it a few times when I was a teenager. <laughs> um, it's actually pretty dangerous. So people will generally make a tea out of the leaves um, and, and it causes a delirium um, where it, uh, it affects, it, it makes the muscles that focus your eye stop working. 
So everything gets blurry. And so you can hallucinate from that. Some people will commonly uh, describe what we call a Lilliputian hallucination, where they see a lot of little people or like little aliens. Um, it's generally people don't feel very good. They're pretty out of it. They're, they're uncoordinated, they have bad balance, and everything's blurry. And if they take too much, it can be a medical emergency and they can need, um, uh, we need to give them uh, medicines like, like, uh, that work like adrenaline to kind of reverse some of the effects. Um, but it's everywhere. It's everywhere. We call it local weed because um, it's like you want to, if you have a corral, let's say, and you have horses, you want to look for it and you want to get it out of there. Because if your animals eat it, they can become delirious. They can become like psychotic and, you know, you might have to put them down and stuff. It, it, they can get hurt. It, it's pretty dangerous for them. Um, it's the form of Datura that grows out here. There's also another plant called Angel's Trumpet that grows like in California and elsewhere. That's another form of Datura plant that has similar alkaloids in it, similar, similar chemicals that... Um, but some people will use it ceremonially or some people will use it as, as a drug again, just because it's so easy to find. Um, cause it, it literally will grow on the sidewalks. Beautiful plant. A funny thing about Datura, uh, it's actually planted around Los Alamos because, um, it pulls heavy metals out of the soil. And so it's used as like environmental cleanup up there. People plant this, this plant and then it pulls all the, the junk that they've poisoned the land with up there into it. And it's, that's how you can sequester some of the heavy metals. And then the wow. kids eat it. Yeah. And then I don't know what they do with those plants. Probably put them down at whip. At whip. Yeah. Um, they probably should. But kind of interesting. So that's, that's kind of a local drug. I've seen the kids at the high school that took it a couple of days. They got really, really nauseous, like really sick. Yeah. It makes you, it makes you, it it's just, not a pleasant experience. It's not a pleasant drug. I've uh, Nick Onkin with Three Rancho TD. I've actually had to restrain and fight with folks who are on um, the the loco weed, and uh, they can be very, very strong, very combative. And uh, a lot of the times when when I've dealt with folks in the in the field who who are on it, um, they typically have a, a much higher body temperature uh, than than you'd normally see. Um, you know, with, with somebody else who was having, you know, a reaction to something else. So uh, temperatures upwards of 104, 105 uh, degrees. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, that's that's part of the delirium. That's that's part of why it's so dangerous. Um, it's a dangerous drug. Speaking of high temperatures, this came up yesterday in our talk, too. Um, this is also something to think about whenever somebody's on ecstasy. Um, so there are a lot of names for ecstasy since we're talking about terms. You hear a lot about Molly these days. Um, so Molly is ecstasy and the M for Molly comes from the chemical name for ecstasy, MDMA, which is methylene dioxy methamphetamine. So all ecstasy is a methamphetamine, but it also has this little hallucinogen ring on it. And one of the things that it causes is hyperthermia. So it causes body temperature to go pretty high. And that's actually why people die from taking ecstasy is because, is because their temperature gets too high. Um, so it's something to think about anytime that you see somebody like Nick, like with what you're just describing with Datura or with ecstasy, you know, if, if you have somebody in custody and their temperature is that high, it's a medically important to try and cool them down. So if you have ice packs or if you have a fan, 
you know, even if you can just get them wet and put a fan in front of them, anything you can do to, to pull down their, their body temperature might actually save their life. Uh, cause those high body temperatures can cause seizures and cause strokes. Um, uh, they, and, and that's, that's how people die. So, and, and I, I tell this to teens. So when I talk to teens who are using ecstasy, like, especially if they use them like at dance clubs or raves or things, most of them think that, that dehydration is the issue and it's not. So I tell them when you get too hot, you know, go outside and cool down. That's kind of my form of harm reduction for them. So that's Molly. What are other drugs that are out in the news and in the... Have you seen anything about LSD? Or has it kind of just gone away? So people who have been around for a while, um, there used to be a ton of LSD here, right? And now it all kind of, it's hard to get. Um, and that's because there was like, there was one guy in Santa Fe who was making it. And he was just flooding Albuquerque and, and New Mexico with LSD in the 80s and uh, the 90s too. And then he got busted. Um, so that's why there's not a lot of LSD now. It's harder because um, as I understand, it's a pretty complicated process to make it. Okay. Um, and so that's why not a lot of people make it. You don't hear about people making it in their bathtub and stuff like that because it, it takes some chemical know-how. It's actually a pretty complicated chemical itself. Um, you know, it's interesting, the hallucinogens. So like LSD, psilocybin, which is in mushrooms, mescaline, which is in peyote, and DMT, which is what's in something called ayahuasca. These are what we call the classic hallucinogens. They're a pretty interesting group of drugs. For the most part, they don't cause addiction. And also for the most part, they're really safe. Now, but the caveat there is that like people might do stupid things while they're on them, right? Like they're safe in the right conditions. Um, the worst thing that they cause physiologically, I guess the two worst things in most people, the worst thing that they cause is for blood pressure to go up while you're on them. And so we actually, we do research with them at UNM. And so like we're monitoring people's blood pressure every 15 and every 30 minutes. And then once an hour, it's about a six hour session. We use psilocybin. Um, so blood pressure is the big thing there. Now they can make people psychotic if there's somebody who has, who's at risk for becoming psychotic. Like if you're, if you have schizophrenia, if you have family members, schizophrenia, we don't let those people into our studies because it's likely to damage them. But most people, Permanently? uh, you can make them, I, I've known people who, who their, their, their long history of schizophrenia started with taking hallucinogens. Now, would it have happened if they, you know, they used it at their teens and, you know, who knows, but even temporarily it can be pretty a problem. Also, I have met people who have gotten PTSD from a really bad trip. Um, so, and there's actually a whole science of how to prevent a bad trip. And that's like, nobody has bad trips in our studies. Um, in fact, nobody has had a bad trip in our studies. Uh, if you do it the right way, but if you do it the wrong way, you can totally have a bad trip and that can be very traumatizing. I've met people who, who, who met the diagnosis of PTSD after that, um, because it's so real, right? It's so real. The, um, but it doesn't really cause addiction. Now, some people abuse it. Uh, like I knew people who like maybe for the 10th in the 10th grade, they took acid every day for the 10th grade, you know, like for a year. All four years that they were in 10th grade. Yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. But like, but, but, but when people do that, they stop at the end of that year. First of all, their tolerance is really high. So they have to take a whole sheet at a time because you actually develop tolerance pretty quickly to LSD. 
but but also it's just it, it they don't keep doing it like you know you don't meet people who are having cravings for acid or cravings for for psilocybin and that's because of how it chemically works it's not reinforcing and it lasts a really long time unlike you know cocaine or heroin which are super reinforcing nicotine too super reinforcing alcohol but these classic hallucinogens just aren't really reinforcing. There's also a lot of misinformation put out about them by the, starting with the Nixon administration. Like for instance, that, that it would mess up your DNA. Um, that, was a, that was a widely held concern. Well, acid, acid will mess up your DNA and, and if you try to have kids, they'll have birth defects. Totally untrue. It's actually been studied um, and, and that myth has been dispelled. Um, and there's actually a lot of research going on, like our research. Uh, UNM, Johns Hopkins, and NYU is doing research on hallucinogens, uh, the therapeutic use of them. So, for instance, we're running a study right now where we're treating alcoholism with this hallucinogen, psilocybin, believe it or not. Um, at Johns Hopkins, they've been doing a study over the last seven years, one session of psilocybin for smoking cessation. And so far, it works better than any other treatment we have for smoking cessation. Um. And then the coolest study, I think, was done by at NYU, where they took people who were having, uh, who were at the end of life, uh, people who had uh, cancer and other terminal illnesses, and they gave them one session of, of psilocybin, uh, the mushroom hallucinogen. And the and what happened there is that there was a really big decrease in people's anxiety about their illness or about end of life. Like some people kind of went through the dying process during their trip. And then afterwards they were no longer afraid of dying wow. and they just spent the rest of their time like connecting with people and putting things in order. And, and, and actually it was like awesome. Yeah, uh, you can look that up in the New York times. They did a really good uh, story on that. We're trying to replicate that study here. Wow. Um, and like, just, they don't do damage. They're, they're kind of neat. They can do damage though. And like, this is under like pretty, pretty controlled circumstances. We're choosing who to do it. We have a doc there the whole time. When people use them on the streets, if people use them driving, clearly they can be a problem. Uh, and when teenagers use them at parties, they can do totally stupid things or they can, they're at risk to be victimized if they're out of it. Um, what else? What other drugs? What other drugs are you guys seeing out there? Not the time, yeah. Jason Town, U.S. Probation. We've been seeing a lot of um, Suboxone going around through the halfway houses and, and such. Yeah, we were talking about this last night. So, and it's a bummer because Suboxone is getting a really bad rap, and it's too bad. Um, if, if I can reassure you of anything, let me reassure you, don't be worried about Suboxone. Um, so it's like it came up yesterday because it's smuggled into jails. So let's talk about that first. Like it's, it's, it's smuggled into jails and prisons a lot. And the issue with that is that like when you're in drug or, or sorry, when you're in jail or prison, you will use anything to try to get high because you're totally bored. Right. And you're somewhere where you'd rather not be for the most part. Um, and so people will, will like abuse Wellbutrin in jail. 
when like most people on the outs will not abuse Wellbutrin because it doesn't really intoxicate you. But, you know, Benadryl has value in jail because, because you're at least a little sedated. So Suboxone, if you, if you just use Suboxone every once in a while, you don't take it every day, you can have a little bit of a change in your mental state, but you don't, it's not like you're nodding. It's not like heroin. It's not like oxycodone or methadone at all. And if you take it a subsequent day, there's zero intoxication. There's zero mental effect. Um, also, Suboxone comes in these films, and the films are easy to smuggle into jail and prison. Um, like people have told me what they'll do is they'll, they'll take a stamp for an envelope and lick around the border of the stamp and then put the little Suboxone film on the part that they didn't lick and stick that to the paper and put a bunch of postage on the, on the letter so that then when it gets to whoever it gets to, they can just pull out, they pull off the stamps and on the back is a little Suboxone film. So that's in jail and prison. And actually like we can, we've even like set up experiments where we take rats, rats and mice are actually a pretty good model for drug addiction for humans. And, and you can get rats addicted to cocaine really easily. You just give them cocaine, give them cocaine and, and they get addicted. And if you put them in a cage, that's really boring, they'll keep using the cocaine. And if you put the rat in a cage where there's like fun things to do, a little wheel to run on and balls and stuff like that, they don't use as much cocaine and humans are like that too. When we get bored, we want to change our mental state. And if we have something to do, we don't. And this is kind of a lesson for, I guess, how to structure people's time. So now on the street, Suboxone does have street value, halfway houses on the street. Most people though, that are using Suboxone on the street tell us this has been studied in studies. And I just see this in the clinic because they come and talk to me when they finally get insurance, they're trying to treat their own addiction with Suboxone because Suboxone does not get you high. It just doesn't get you high. Um, so most people that are using it on the street are trying to treat their own addiction. So if you're finding, if you meet somebody and they're using Suboxone on the street, you know, my question, my, what I would urge you to do is ask them, are you, would you like to get into treatment? Would you like a prescription for Suboxone? Because I meet a lot of people who they'll come and meet me. They've been using heroin or misusing pain pills. And they say, have you ever heard about Suboxone? And they say, yeah, I've been using it. I used it for like three months. And during that whole time, I didn't use heroin or I didn't use it very much. But it's too expensive and I couldn't keep doing it. And now I have insurance. So what does it do for them or what do they think it does for them? So what Suboxone does is it, is it, it, it prevents, it stops your cravings for opiates. Mm. It sits in that opiate receptor and then you're not craving more heroin or more pain pills and it lasts about 30 hours. So it lasts all day. So people find that if they take Suboxone, whether they're taking it on the street or they're taking it from, you know, me who prescribes it, that they can get through the day without trying to score some, some H. What are the long-term effects then? Uh, like negative? Well, yeah, like if, yeah. if you know that you're an opiate user and you, and you don't want to ever experience going through the withdrawals and all that again, it, I mean, could it be something you could prescribe for somebody lifetime? Yeah. In fact, what we try to do is prescribe it lifetime. Oh, okay. So, um, so this is true for methadone and for Suboxone. So I'm really glad you brought this up, actually, because sometimes the, they might ask you or, you know, like your advice or what they should do. We always want to encourage people to stay on these drugs. For methadone and for Suboxone, 
when people, especially um, most of our studies are from people who are heroin users. Um, but now we have some new data about people who are opiate pill users as well, and it's about the same. When they stop taking Suboxone or Methadone, about 90% of them go back to using. Oh. 90%, right? So yes, some people can get can come off those medicines and stay off the off the opiates, but like not very many. One in ten. Um, so opiate addiction is the one addiction that medicine is more important than anything else. Medicine is like a have to, and it's got to really be suboxone or methadone. Um, in fact, now we consider it unethical to do a placebo experiment with methadone or suboxone because the last one that was done with suboxone it had suboxone or a placebo it looked exactly the same and they had to they had to stop the study after 20 percent of the people in the placebo group died from overdoses oh wow because they were all having cravings because they weren't getting a real a, the real drug and so they were over 20 percent of them died wow so now we say you can't do any more placebo studies <laughs> using these drugs because it's just the alternative is too lethal. So, um, so we want, we want to encourage people to get on to, to methadone or suboxone and we want to encourage them to stay on as long as possible. Um, sometimes people want to come off and, and, you know, I have a long talk with patients and you want to come off, you know, I'll help you come off, but, but we, we figure out the backup plan before we start. If you relapse, you know, we're going to go right back on. Um, if you can do it, awesome. You go to your meetings, everything else, awesome. You know, so if you get far away enough from the life, like you might be able to, to stay off. Um, but something stressful happens, um, you might just might push you over and fall off the wagon. So, um, and Suboxone does not have any long-term negative effects. This is I consider Suboxone a miracle drug because it's so safe and it's so effective. I, I wish that instead of everybody being on oxycodone for their pain, mm -hmm. that they were on Suboxone because there's no lethal overdose with Suboxone. Mm -hmm. It doesn't stop your breathing like all the other opiates do. Methadone can. You can overdose on methadone. At methadone clinics, you know, that's why we have people take it out the window mm -hmm. in front of us, observed. You have to do work the program and meet all these federal guidelines before you can take home doses um, and really show that you can take it responsibly. And methadone can have effects on your heart in the long run sometimes, but, but for most people it doesn't. Um, and when that happens, then we switch them to Suboxone. This, this is a side um, note. We talked last night in our CNT training about uh, judgments around people that use drugs. And I have to admit that you didn't mention this last night about the methadone or the suboxone mm -hmm. maybe being a lifetime thing. And I would say that in the past, if somebody, if I talked to somebody, they had been on methadone for years and years and years, I just thought, oh, that's just them trying to, to skate by with a, a legal high. It's another addiction, right? Yeah. but Yeah. So it's not another addiction. So our medical definition of an addiction is that your, your use of a substance in, impairs your ability to function socially mm -hmm. in our society. What kind of side effects does it have though being on it for that long? So, so for instance, people who are on, in methadone maintenance treatment, that's like that they go to a methadone clinic. They are um, more likely to get a job. 
compared to before. They're less likely to get new infectious diseases or spread them because they're not using needles anymore. They're less likely to be arrested again and recidivize. They are more likely to pay child support. Um, so, and this is like well-documented. So methadone and suboxone, actually they benefit the individual and they benefit society. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> so again, it gets back to this, this idea of addiction is, is not that you, you are reliant on something, right? Like if that's the case, then I'm reliant, then I'm addicted to oxygen, yeah. which is like, which is kind of silly, yeah. right? So, cause like I need it and I go into withdrawal if I can't get it, but it's not impairing my life or my function. Mm -hmm. um, and so, so that's why really the definition of addiction is that like, it's causing problems getting along with people. It's causing problems in your roles, like keeping a job, being a parent, being a partner. Um, it is, you're having trouble cutting down. You're using it in hazardous situations like driving, um, these things. These that this so that's it doesn't really give you a high. Methadone does intoxicate you a little bit. Suboxone does not. Um, and honestly, that's why some people prefer one and the other, and vice versa. So, like, we all hoped that teens would prefer suboxone because it's so safe and awesome, right? Teens who are addicted to opiates. Turns out they don't. They prefer methadone. Why? Because yeah, because like all teens want a, a buzz. That's like that's being a teenager. Right. It wasn't last week I tried that tour. It was when I was like 14. <laughs> right. Um, and so and so that's why they prefer methadone, whereas plenty of, of adults, there are plenty of adults who are like, I don't want that feeling from methadone. Mm -hmm. I want the suboxone where I just feel normal. You know, when I get people on suboxone, they start feeling emotions again. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that'll freak them out. But like that's it's just because they've been so separated from normal human experience for so long. Dan, this has been a, a great talk. I know we're kind of we're, we're past the hour, yeah. but does anyone out there on the network have any questions on this one? Frank? So just, so let's say you have an individual that, that's on the Suboxone, but they still are saying, you know, have the craving or they want to use heroin or stuff. That's a psychological yeah. addiction, not a physical addiction at that point there's 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 not a difference there's no difference that person what that person needs is a higher dose of suboxone yeah it's kind of funny so like if somebody you know with some medicines if people use we're like oh i don't want to give you this medicine if we're treating somebody with suboxone and they're either having cravings or they're actually still using heroin we need to increase the dose of suboxone and that's how we tell what what dose is the right dose um, is, is that they're no longer having cravings and they're not having withdrawal. Um, that's how we know we're at the right dose. Yeah. It's a great question. I guess another question is there are not a ton of Suboxone providers out there. Do you guys all know somebody like where to send people? Mm -mm. Maybe we should come up with a list. Yeah, I have no clue. Jason? Uh, Jason County Yost Probation. We, there's um, the Duke City Toolbox, I believe, still around, and there's Epoch. Yeah. Yep. That does um, suboxone protocol. It's funny, too, what you say. I was just talking to a therapist a few days ago about one of my vendors who's in the suboxone program, and she flat out said, you know, it's just another drug he's using. He's trying to use that drug.
to get that high. And it's interesting what you're saying, that it doesn't give him that high. And we've kind of talked about that. And I think there's still definitely a misconception about Suboxone out there. There totally is. There totally is. Yeah, um, exactly. We need, to, we need to educate POs. We need to educate um, counselors. We need to educate judges, especially like the drug court judges. You know, when I hear about drug courts not allowing Suboxone, it's just like, clearly they just don't, they, they need an education. Even family though, too. Family I've too. Had, I've had parents come to me and say, oh, I don't want, I, th- th- that's terrible. I don't want to get them addicted to something else. Right, right. And that's when it gets into that discussion of like, what is an addiction really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The other thing that some people will think is they think that they're allergic to Suboxone because they tried it on the street and they got real sick. And what we can do is explain to them, you took it at the wrong time. If you take Suboxone right after you've, it, when, when you already have other opiates in your brain, like heroin, like, like you just took them and they're still in their brain, Suboxone will kick them out of your brain and you'll go into withdrawal. Oh. So you have to wait a day. You have to wait 24 hours before you start Suboxone. And you actually have to start kicking. You have to start to go into withdrawal. And then you take the Suboxone and it makes all your withdrawal go away. But if you take it too early, it'll cause withdrawal. And then people think, oh, I can't take Suboxone. Um, so we've got to educate them. That was a great question, Frank. Does anyone else have any other questions? Awesome. Thanks, guys. See you next week. Have a good weekend.